The Good Reading Podcast is brought to you by Read, the monthly book subscription that pairs a new release book with a pampering gift delivered to your door. There are new books every month and nine genres to choose from. Why not spoil yourself or give the gift of a Read subscription today? Visit luxury.com.au to find out how. Scarlet falls to her knees and pulls a strange tool from the back pocket of her jeans. It's ancient looking, slightly rusted, has a long handle with a kind of flat foot on the bottom, which she inserts into the underside of the first step and then uses to lever away the stone from its setting. She carefully removes a piece of stone and sets it behind her. A cold draft blows through the hole and Tallulah shivers slightly. I found this book, Scarlet is saying, as she slides her hand into the open hole in the staircase, a history of this house. And there was something in there about a secret tunnel, like an escape tunnel. Scarlet leans back and brushes some hair from her face. And lo and behold, she says to Tallulah, waving her arm across the opening, she was fucking right. Tallulah's mouth is hanging open. She stares into the hole and then up at Scarlet. Oh my God, she whispers. The dog has been snuffling at the pieces of stone and now passes to Lula to peer down the hole, sniffing the air loudly. Want to come and have a look inside, says Scarlett, turning on the flashlight on her phone. Hello and welcome to the Good Reading Podcast. My name's Greg Dobbs. Lisa Jewell is the best-selling author of 19 works of fiction, ranging from comedy romance right through to crime thrillers and everything in between. Today I'm talking with Lisa Jewell about her latest thriller, The Night She Disappeared. Lisa, welcome to the Good Reading Podcast. Hi, thank you for having me. Lisa, if we're talking about genres of fiction, you're quite hard to pin down. You started your career writing comedy romance and stories about contemporary relationships. And I, is that a genre? I'm not sure. In 2008, you were awarded the Melissa Nathan Award for Comedy Romance for your novel 31 Dream Street. But The Night She Disappeared is a rather disturbing and very dark <laughs> psychological thriller. What happened? Well, what happened? Well, I think the, the main thing to point out is that what happened has happened over a course of a 25-year career. So there wasn't a, a moment of like, oh, my God, Lisa Jewell just wrote a really dark psychological thriller. Um, so basically, if you've been reading me from the get-go, if you've been reading me from 1999 when my first novel came out, which was called Ralph's Party, and you've been reading a book a year, every year until now, you probably wouldn't even notice the changes as they happened because there was never a dramatic change. It was just always, even with my romantic comedies, there was always dark stuff going on in there. I wasn't scared to talk about depression or suicide or abortion or, you know, there was all sorts of dark things going on inside those romantic comedies. Um, and a lot of the fact that they were viewed as romantic comedies was in the way that they were published because, you know, you see you, what you were saying is that a genre. Well, certainly in the UK, it was called Chicklet at the time. And that was very much where I where, where I was, I fitted into the market and very much where my publishers wanted me to fit into the market. But yeah, so I was already being quite dark inside that genre. Um, and then, you know, I started writing my first novel when I was 26 years old. And within the, the sort of 25 years of my writing career, I've become a, you know, a mature woman. I've had children, I've experienced loss. My life has changed, things have moved on, and my, you know, I think it's a lot to do with confidence, actually. 
I think what's actually happened is with every book I've written, I've become more and more confident to move away from how I was originally perceived and just to ramp up the darkness in the books because that's always been the genre that I've liked reading. So, yeah, just with each book, I've incrementally just sort of pushed away from the relationship aspect of the novels, got rid of some of the jokes, <laughs> made it sort of slightly less lightweight in, in ways, and then just ramped up the darkness and the, and then introducing dead bodies and what have you sort of here and there. Um, so, yeah, it's been a very gradual process that's brought me from there to here. You seem to have progressed into darker places to this point where the place we're talking about in this book is called Dark Place. How much darker can you get after you've been to a dark place? <laughs> um, I actually am not entirely sure that The Night She Disappeared is my darkest novel. I think I've, I think I've had a couple. I think um, Then She Was Gone and The Family Upstairs are much darker and weirder and more sinister and unsettling than The Night She Disappeared. Um, in fact, my last novel, Invisible Girl, was set in um, January. So it was physically dark as well, because obviously in the UK at that time of year is dark by 3 p.m. So so the night she disappeared is actually set in the midsummer. Um, so there's quite a lot of lightness going on in it as well. So it, it's kind of it's a it's a weird balancing thing with each novel. But I, uh, you asked earlier about whether I'm going to get progressively darker with each book. And I don't necessarily think that is a trajectory that I'm on. Each book does its own thing and sort of shows itself to me as I write it in terms of how dark is this going to get? Um, and this one, yeah, it is dark. It is dark. That doesn't necessarily mean that the next one will have to be incrementally darker. Would I just take each one on its own merits. One thing that's common right through these, and I think you um, touched on it before, is this interest in relationships. And there's a lot of stuff here about infatuation, trust, manipulation are they the themes of this book that you wanted to explore I didn't set out to do that in fact um Tallulah um and the relationship I think you're talking about is between Tallulah who um is the girl who disappears that night um who is a teenage mum and her boyfriend Zach who's the father of her baby and actually when I started writing the book I was going to have Tallulah as a single mum with a deadbeat dad who didn't want to know and wasn't part of her life bringing up her baby and he just sort of appeared and then I couldn't get rid of him. Um, and he made it very clear to me without wishing to sound pretentious. This fictional character made it very clear to me that he wanted to be part of the story. And if he was going to be part of Tallulah's story, he needed to play his role. Um, and that's where I brought in these themes of coercion and control. I'd also read quite a few stories in, in the papers over the last couple of years about um, uh, coercive control and and murder in fact uh, in teenage relationships um, you know it's often seen that these sorts of um, that dark twisted controlling relationships are often seen to be the preserve of like married people or people with children or middle-aged people um, but this does actually happen in teenage relationships as well so I thought that was quite an interesting thing to so it was rather than me sitting down and thinking oh I'd really like to write a book about a you know a teenage couple and, and coercive control that kind of just came through my characters um, and sort of put itself out there. And I thought, okay, yeah, I can do that. I'll write about that. Um, and that, of course, is just, it's just interesting, isn't it? It just, you know, if they'd been a happily, happily sort of harmonious teenage couple bringing up their baby together, it would have been, it would have taken a, you know, taken something really complex and interesting out of the plot. So when those things 
present themselves to me, I jump on them and go, yeah, okay, we're going to do this. <laughs> I suppose had they been a happily married couple that would have turned into a comedy romance. Well, that's that's the danger, you see. <laughs> if we're talking about uh, coercive control, we've got to talk about Scarlett Jacks. She's the the really dark or unpredictable character, I suppose. She's charismatic. She's dangerous. She's a nightmare. Yes, it's funny because I've never really vocalised this or even internally um, vocalised this, but I was talking to my daughter uh, about this book the other day. Oh, that's right, because we were talking about the possibility of it being made into a TV show, and she is asking me, asking me about the characters in it. And I said, oh, yeah, and there's this, there's this girl called Scarlett. And as I said, I realised that she was based on one of my daughter's friends, and I hadn't kind of picked up on the I said, she's a bit like Mimi, you know. <laughs> and uh, so, yeah, Mimi was this girl who was at school with my daughter, and she just had this power over everybody around her. And then you would meet this, this sort of, you know, this amazing Mimi person and just think, oh, you're just a girl. You're just, uh, I couldn't get it. I couldn't understand why she had so much power over her friendship group and how she was allowed to behave so badly. Um, and nobody ever called her out on it. And it was, everything was about Mimi's moods and Mimi's wants. And, you know, if Mimi was in a bad mood, then everyone was in a bad, it, it, you know, that sort of, you know, that sort of central female character in, yes. in a, particularly in a teenage female friendship group. Um, and yes, yeah, so she was kind of, I think, inspired by, by Mimi, who, who will never listen to this podcast, so we're safe. <laughs> <laughs> I'm hoping uh, it doesn't turn out uh, in real life in the way it turns out in the book with Mimi. No, no. And, in fact, my daughter is still friends with Mimi and uh, she's 18 now and she's turned into a thoroughly decent young lady. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so it was just a matter but of maturity yes. rather than It's character. just a matter of maturity. But, yes, yeah, so Scarlett, unfortunately, in the book has not reached that level of maturity by the time she meets Tallulah. Uh, she's still very much on a journey. Got to also talk to you about Sophie Beck. She's the well, um, an author, uh, an amateur mm -hmm. sleuth, I suppose, and she's dropped right into the middle of this unfolding situation. She writes thrillers under the name of P.J. Fox and the Little Hither Green Detective Agency. Is this a, a kind of disguised cameo role for Lisa Jewell? No, only in as much as she wears white trainers every day. That was a that was I put that in as a little like yeah that that's the only bit of me in Sophie is that she wears uh, a pair of white trainers every day. Um, no, so actually with Sophie, she accompanies her boyfriend who's older than her, and he's just been made the headmaster of this um, very upmarket up board. Well, is there such a thing as a downmarket boarding school? I don't suppose there is, um, but a particularly upmarket boarding school in the Surrey countryside. And it's a boarding school for 16 to 19 year olds who are doing exam retakes, basically. It's for kids who've flunked their exams elsewhere um, and their parents can throw a whole load of money at this place, shove their kids in there and get them to get their exam results. Um, and he's just been made the head teacher here. And Sophie accompanies him as his partner. They're not married. In fact, they've only been going out for six months, so it's still a new relationship. And I realised that if I was going to use her as, I always have a character who I use as a detective because I don't use detectives. Um, I needed her to have the flexibility, well, number one, the flexibility to have left London and, and moved to the countryside with her new boyfriend. And number two, the flexibility to just 
get up and, and sort of wander around and nose around the community. <laughs> and I thought, what could she be? What could Sophie be? And then I thought, Duh, she could be <laughs> she could be a novelist because clearly novelists have quite a lot of spare time and they're very nosy. So then that was kind of, I pinned that on her quite a few chapters into writing the book. I suddenly thought, ah, she's a novelist. And I thought, well, let's make her a detective novelist. But I thought, well, I can't make her a crime writer or a, or a, a writer of, of psychological thrillers because then people just think she's me. So I made her a slightly, you know, sort of subgenre of the crime genre, which is this thing that's called cosy crime. Um, which is these very, very old-fashioned, slightly twee detective novels where nothing really gory or, or horrible or gruesome happens. Um, yeah, so that's how Sophie came to be. Um, and it was it actually worked out brilliantly in the end in terms of the relationship between one of her novels and the, uh, the events of the book, which I can't talk about without giving away spoilers. Of course. But, yes. And Sophie is actually the catalyst for, I guess, the reawakening of this mystery. She's the one who uh, follows the instructions of dig here. Yes. On the, her first day, her boyfriend goes to work um, and she is left alone in the head teacher's cottage where they are living and decides to explore the grounds. And yes, she finds this cardboard, cardboard sign nailed to the fence of her back garden saying dig here with an arrow pointing down into the soil and she goes and gets a trowel and she digs and that's where so it's kind of like a cold case because Tallulah when the book starts Tallulah's been missing for a year Tallulah and Zach have both been missing for a year um and yeah they they, they did the investigation the police investigation has run out of budget they're not really investigating it anymore um and yeah then Sophie unearths something literally unearths something from her back garden that brings the case back up into the light, um, gets the detectives back on the on the scene. The way you manage time is quite special too. You move between the past and the present as a way, I guess, of joining the the two elements of the book together: the crime and the solving of the crime. Yeah, well, I've never I've never managed to write a book from one character's perspective. I, I almost find. It, unbelievable when I read a book by somebody else where they have managed to encompass all the nuance and detail and history and propulsion of a mystery or a crime with only one person's perspective to look at. I always find that absolutely incredible they managed to do that. I almost feel like I'm cheating because when you've got a crime or a secret the more people who you've got looking at it and the more timelines that you're seeing it from, the, 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 the easier it is to, to piece the whole thing together. So I'm doing it from my own point of view, really, as a writer. So I know that this thing has happened and I don't plot and I don't plan. So I just make it up as I go along. So the more people who are looking at this thing. And so, for example, with, with the Tallulah storyline, which is set from sort of two years before she goes missing, I hadn't planned to do that. But I knew that she'd gone missing. And I thought to, in order for me to help myself find, find out where she is and how she went missing and why she went missing, I need to follow Tallulah's journey to the point of where she disappeared. So that's why. So I don't necessarily do it for the reader as such. I do it for me, because if it wasn't for me writing those chapters about what Tallulah was doing and the build up to her going missing, I wouldn't have known. So for me. It's just how I plot because I don't plan. That's interesting to hear because the plots feel very carefully planned 
And yet, uh-huh. what, you're, what you're saying is that it's the characters and their actions, I guess, that drive the plot and you work it out as you go along. Yes, it's, it's, a, it's a combination of the, the decisions that I make as I write, um, which is not the same as plotting. I make decisions as I write because, um, and that's partly to do with kind of having confidence. I find it much easier to make those decisions now than I did when I first started writing novels and sticking with them. So, for example, the dig here sign that was nailed to a fence. Um, originally, I thought that there might be a dead body buried there. And that was how the story was go- going to unfurl. But from the minute Sophie dug up the thing, um, which I can't mention, um, that turned the whole story round because it wasn't a dead body as I'd imagined it would be. It was something completely different, but I had no idea what it meant or who would put it there or why they put it there or what it was doing there in the first place. I guess it really, well, for me, it added to the complexity and made this a very mysterious web of deceit, I suppose, and uh, the unknown is what draws you into this book. Yes, and it's unknown to me, you see. So I, I often feel like I might be having a fairly similar experience to the reader when I'm writing, because I don't know either. In a sense, you're solving the crime yourself. That's exactly what I'm doing. Exactly, exactly. I can't imagine. I almost feel like it'd be really boring to sit down to write a crime novel or a psychological thriller where you already knew everything, because then you would just be sort of laying down the pieces and not having any of the sort of the the adrenaline or the thrill or the the unexpectedness of things just arriving on the page that... uh, kind of yeah that that solve the puzzle for you it sounds like a great position to be in and on that note i'd like to thank you for joining me on the good reading podcast thank you for having me it's been lovely thank you i've been talking to lisa jewell about her latest book the night she disappeared it's published by penguin random house and is available at goodreadingmagazine.com.au my name's greg dobbs and thanks for listening This Good Reading Podcast was brought to you by Luxury Read. Why not spoil yourself or give the gift of a Luxury Read subscription today? Visit luxuryread.com.au to find out how.